Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number seven of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I have learned in aviation, both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. Last episode, I talked about the differences between the captain and the first officer and the duties they each have. I figured now that you have a better picture of how that works, why not walk you through an entire flight from start to finish? There are a lot of behind-the-scenes things that go on that I'm sure many people are curious about, so I will share some of that with you today. The first step in going about uh, our day, our first trip, uh, is obviously getting to the airport and going through security. There's a neat little entrance for crew members called KCM, which stands for Known Crew Member, and this is a special access point that allows us to bypass passenger screening so that we can promptly get to the plane and, and get it ready for the passengers. In order to maintain the integrity of KCM, in other words, the, the security of it, there is a randomized selection process. We often refer to this as getting randomed where after our badge is scanned and we get the dreaded red bar instead of a green one, we have to go around and, and go through the passenger screening process with passengers. So if you ever noticed any pilots or flight attendants who are in the normal passenger screening area, that's because either that airport did not have KCM, uh, which is relevant particularly at the smaller airports, or they did in fact get randomly selected. In order to expedite this process, however, TSA agents will have us cut the line and separate our bags from passengers. So this means that while we're in uniform, we get the nice little perk of keeping our liquids and, and not having to throw things away, unless they do find that knife we forgot to leave at home. Oops! Uh, recently, uh, as of late 2022, we did get a notice from the TSA that would be that they would be making changes to KCM and that meant increasing the random selections and also giving it a whole new revamp and I think a new name or something. So if you've been noticing more, uh, if you've been traveling uh, often recently and you've been noticing more and more flight attendants and pilots going through that TSA pre-check line instead of just magically disappearing and, and reappearing in the secure area, that's why uh, it's it's you know, a change that's going on. In response to this change, I, I read a post from one of the pilot unions to some of its pilots to purposefully go through the standard passenger screening lines to create delays instead of going to their KCM checkpoint. Essentially, this is, is meant as a silent protest of the changes so that if there's enough delays because crew members are clogging the lines, that they would reconsider this as a you know as maybe an unnecessary change and, and go back to to the way things were before that increase in random selections were happening. So it, we'll see if if that actually makes enough of a change uh, or if if things will go through with this this newer policy uh, procedures that will that will go into effect at, at some point in the near future. We'll we'll see what happens. Uh, the, the, the changes were announced apparently because there have been some violations. Some people have been using KCM access for personal international travel, which is not permitted if you're going to do that. You have to go through the normal security line. And some have brought weapons with them 
but the thing is, we've we've never seen any data points from the TSA to indicate that this was a recent increase in violations. But in my opinion, and and I think I share this with many colleagues and friends, they are they're attempting to gain more control of of the entire system for whatever reason. Anyway, that that's. Yeah, a bit of a ramble uh, sprinkled with a little bit of complaining, I guess, about that whole screening process. And and I, I think what gets me the most is how non-standardized from one airport to the next each checkpoint can be. When you're not in uniform, I I can we can still use KCM if it is provided at the airport. Uh, and and when I get randomly selected, I. Uh, I sometimes can go through TSA PreCheck, and other times they won't let me, which means you know I'd have to go through the regular process, taking my shoes off and all that. Boo-hoo, poor me, right? <laughs> but but if I were to change the fabric that I was wearing, I'd be treated differently, and and you know I could keep all the liquids in my bag and all this. It's just kind of kind of ridiculous how the whole process works. And and you know again, if you're wearing a uniform. Uh, if it's a small airport that didn't have KCM anyway, they would let you go through the TSA pre-check point. But if you're not wearing a uniform, even though you have the same badge, the same qualifications, they make you go through the other line and, and they don't they don't treat you as a crew member. So it's just kind of ridiculous how this whole process works. And, and it, it makes honestly no sense. But again, bit of a side rant and, and a bit of complaining from me. So anyway, once we've cleared our security checkpoint, whether that was by the unlucky and, and like I said, more frequent random selection process or, or the few of us that did make it through KCM, we then will make our way to the gate. Each company is a little different, but our report time is 45 minutes prior to departure. This means that we need to be clearing security at least 45 minutes prior and then we must be at the gate at least 30 minutes prior to departure. On overnights at hotels that we stay at, many of these hotels will actually schedule the van ride time for us, and, and as long as that time abides by the aforementioned report times, we'll, we'll stick together as a crew. But I mean, sometimes other crew members might report earlier because maybe they want a little more time to grab some food or, or coffee. Uh, but when I when I report for the start of a trip at my my home base airport of Logan in Boston, I try to get to the gate about an hour prior to departure. And in in many cases, the plane will be there, uh, or at least it's it's just arriving, or or those passengers are deplaning. So it gives me a chance to get the plane ready a little early and and give a few more minutes for the you know the high nice to meet you formalities of uh, of the small talk with with a new crew. And if if the plane just parked and is deplaning. As the first officer, I'll, I'll check in with the gate agent, and and as soon as most of the passengers have deplaned, I'll actually make my way down the jet bridge, even if the previous crew is still there, and, and maybe there's a few more passengers that are coming off the jet bridge. And if they are still there, that will actually save them a walk around, because at the end of the last flight with that plane, if the next crew is there, you can skip your post-flight walk around inspection. Uh, since that next crew, in, in this case me for this example, is, is, is about to go outside anyway. So this is always nice, especially if it's the last leg of the day and you're ready to go home or get to the hotel and uh, another crew member saves you an extra few minutes uh, 
instead of heading outside into the maybe potential cold rain and whatever mess is going outside during during certain times of the year. So in this scenario, I'll, I'll head outside right away. Since the previous crew is still wrapping up, I'm not going to bring my bags on the plane while they're still trying to get off the plane. So I'll, I'll leave my bag in the jet bridge area and put on my ear protection and high visibility vest and make my way outside. If there was no crew there when I get down to the plane, I'll, I'll first get my bags onto the plane and, and check the maintenance logbook and get the interior turned on if it was a, a cold, dark plane. Um, but more often than not, the, the captain is also there. Uh, so after stowing my bags, I'll head outside and, and the captain will, will check out the logs and, and get things started. But uh, now that I'm outside, I walk down the stairs, which can be a bit slippery during the winter when wet, icy, and, and or there's, there's de-icing fluid everywhere, uh, which is this green, very slimy, nasty fluid. It's, it's pretty nasty stuff, and you have to be really careful. You can, you can fall down uh, easily. Uh, don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> but I'll, I'll first, when I go down the stairs, I'll first go uh, to the GPU port on the left side of the plane. This is below the captain's seat. Uh, the GPU is the ground power unit, and so this port, this little access panel, uh, that, that will be open because the as soon as that plane comes into the gate, the ground crew is, is immediately popping that open and connecting that in most cases. Uh, and so I'll, I'll check the inside of that panel to make sure there's uh, all the circuit breakers, there's three of these circuit breakers, and make sure they're set properly, and the disconnect switch is in the disconnect position. I'll bring this up later, but this switch helps ensure that the steering is deactivated and allows the tug to properly steer the aircraft when pushing us back from the gate. And uh, again, I'll, I'll touch on that in a little bit. But uh, after that, I make my way around to the nose to look at all the probes and ensure there's no damage anywhere. There are two bracketed areas that are called RVSM areas. And, and again, this is on the nose, and, and RVSM stands for Reduced Vertical Separation Minima. And without getting too technical and going too far in depth, it, it's essentially just a, a bunch of equipment that allows us to have only a thousand feet of vertical separation between opposite traffic when we're at 29, between 29,000 and 41,000 feet. So some of this uh, key equipment is, is located within the, the marked brackets on both sides of the nose. So I, I inspect to make sure there's no damage like big dents or bent, broken off air data probes or anything like that. Because if we didn't have that equipment, uh, we wouldn't be able to be in those specific altitude ranges. Uh, and, and we'd be restricted to, to other altitudes and we have to have a 2,000 foot vertical separation. So again, I'm just checking to make sure there's no dents or dings or anything like that. And once the left side looks good, I'll head to the nose to ensure there's no evidence of damage where our weather radar is located. And uh, sometimes it, you might, if you look online of like, uh, I don't know, hail damage or bird strike damage to a jet, uh, this is a very common location for dents to occur because it's it's the most forward section of the airplane so uh, you know whether it's hail or, or a giant bird I mean it can it can put a serious dent in the nose so I just want to make sure that there's there's no bird strikes or big hail holes that have been punched through the nose because our radar is right there and that's a very important piece of equipment that allows us to, to look at the any kind of precipitation that's that's ahead of us 
After that, I'll, I'll take a step back and look up at the windshield wipers and make sure they're aligned correctly. Then I'll look at the right side RVSM areas. And you guessed it, uh, same as before, I'll, I'll look for any damage or abnormalities if, if uh, there's you know any dings and dents and scrapes, anything like that. I mean, if it's if it's not obvious at this point, you can tell that that most of the pre-flight is looking for damage or thinning anything that's out of place and doesn't look right. Any sizable dents and dings and scrapes and scratches, uh, I, I'll take a photo of, and and then I can uh, after my pre-flight is done, I'll consult with the captain, and just to check to see if it's it's actually worth calling maintenance, and and if it is, then we'll call maintenance and and write it up in our logbook uh, to make sure that they come out and and check it out and fix it, or or they'll mark it as something that does not need fixing, and they'll uh, they'll mark it as, as a, they'll actually take a, a black sharpie and they can, like if it's a small dent, they can circle it and number it and say that yep, this dent is okay, this plane can still fly. So that would be one example of, of uh, if maintenance can come out and, and and check things out. But back to my pre-flight. Now I'll head underneath the nose to the forward landing gear bay and check out the taxi and landing lights. I'll give a wiggle to the downlock springs to make sure they're solidly in place. Downlock springs, for those who don't know, it, it keeps the gear arm in its extended and, and downlocked position. Uh, and so there's there's two of them, one on each each side. And so I'll I'll make sure that those are connected properly. Then I'll peer up inside and, and look for any weird dangling wires or leaks or just anything that looks out of the ordinary. And lastly, I'll look at the uplock hook. This uplock hook is what keeps the gear in the up and locked position. So if it if it's not there, that wouldn't be good at all. After the nose looks good, I'll make my way aft on the right side of the aircraft, carefully navigating the bags and ramp agents. I'll add a bit of a side note here. I have encountered some some high and mighty egotistical pilots out there. They exist, uh, and and although I admit I do have a big ego. I never think of myself as higher than anyone else. Everyone has a role, and ramp agents work very hard and, in my opinion, are very underpaid. So when it comes to doing my walk around, I always grab a chance to at least say hello and give them the space that they need. The, the last thing I want to do is get in their way and show off a, oh, I'm a pilot, so you need to respect me kind of attitude. I mean, that's not me. We're all trying to get the job done, and some humility and respect goes a long way. This goes for everyone in the operation. Everyone plays such a key role, and although one might make more money than the other, it's just merely due to the training that's required. But the status as an individual and, and the importance in the whole operation, it's, it's completely a level playing field. So being gracious towards everyone goes a long way and will in turn earn you respect. And as I'm sure most of us have been told as, as we grew up as kids that you want to treat others the way you would like to be treated. And I, I cannot stress this enough. So when I am outside, it's at least a hello nod and, and I'll walk around the baggage cart so that I don't get in the way of the, the loading and unloading process. And I, I haven't done it yet, but I do plan on occasionally at some point bringing out a dozen donuts to, to those ramp crews outside. I'm sure they're hungry and and I don't think they, they get enough breaks sometimes. I've, I've heard they have some long shifts and some of them will work double shifts. So maybe a donut here and there would be great. So for, for those aspiring pilots who, uh, who think you own it all, you don't. You really don't. It's uh, Again, it's a level playing field. Everyone, 
everyone is doing something to get to get the job done and it it's it's insane how much goes into getting a flight to go from point a to point b there's so many people involved uh that that we don't really think about on a on a day-to-day life so uh, so just think about that. If if you you end up finding yourself in a position where you you are a pilot and and you you head out there and you're pre-flooding, just just be nice to the people out there. It goes a long way. And and for those who who are baggage handlers or or gate agents or you know who again anyone in in the operation, if you've encountered a a pilot who's brushing you off, what I can say is I'm sorry. That's you know I I I don't want to believe that any exist, but I know they do. Uh, there are pilots out there and there's individuals in, in every career field that, uh, that just aren't respectful to, to one another. And, and, and I, on behalf of them, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, that's, that's not fun at all, but those I, I would like to believe are few and far between. And, uh, we hope to keep it that way. Anyway, that was quite a long side tangent, but back to my pre-flight. Once I've, I've said my hellos to the ramp crew, I, I make my way towards the right engine. And since I'm facing the, the tail of the plane at this point, I take a glance at the front of the main landing gear suspension and, and ensure it's not collapsed. And then I peer into the tail of the engine nacelle and look for any excessive amounts of oil. Typically there's, there's just a small puddle sitting in the bottom of the tailpipe area, and, and that's fine. But if it was dripping out excessively, that wouldn't be good. That would indicate some sort of leak or something. So next I'll make my way forward on the engine and check that the fin is still firmly attached. The little fin you might have noticed on the side of the engine, maybe the last time you were, you were on a flight and you're, you're thinking to yourself, ever, <laughs> you ever wondered what that fin is? Um, well, it's, our engine, while producing our, our necessary thrust, also sticks out and can cause quite a bit of drag. And so on takeoff, as we are pitched up on that takeoff and, and continually for the climb out, the angle between our wings and our relative direction, uh, which is known as the angle of attack, is pretty high. So airflow separation can occur and degrade our performance. So these little fins will actually help direct airflow over the wings when it would have otherwise separated. So no, that little fin is not a step to climb on. In fact, you'll actually, you most of them I've, I've noticed, will you'll see a little sign that says no step or, or a little uh, figure with a, a picture of a foot with a big, you know, red circle with a, a hash mark through it. So uh, it'll, you know, you don't ever want to step on that because it's, it's, not designed for that. It does It does have some weight-bearing limit, but it's not designed to be stepped on. So after uh, checking the fin, I'll, I'll take a step back. And before I look at the front of the engine, um, now that I've taken a step back, I can look uh, up at the leading edge of the wing in between the fuselage, the, the side of the plane, and the engine. And this is where our landing lights are located. And so I'll just make sure that uh, I don't see any cracks or anything in that uh, housing, the plastic housing cover that, that covers those bulbs. And I'll, I'll look inside too. I mean, the whole thing shouldn't be, I don't know, filled with water or or cracked or any kind of damage like that. Again, just like before, it's it's all about checking for damage, right? As long as nothing looks out of the ordinary, it's it's fine. Sometimes I'll, I'll find a bit of speed tape or um, uh, adhesive 
parts that are slightly peeled off, but as long as it's not actual um, integral parts of, of the aircraft, like metal pieces that are you know cracked or, or folded off, uh, I will. Uh, it'll be fine. But sometimes we have this this stuff called speed tape, which for lack of a better term is is duct tape for airplanes, but it's much lighter and, and it's very strong stuff. Um, some of that will will kind of peel off. It's 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 there to help seal any kind of cracks or, or minor things that that have no impact on the actual structural integrity of the aircraft. Um, so just kind of like bandages pretty much. Uh, but I know that that idea can kind of freak some people out that you have bandages on an airplane. But it's it's again, it's in terms of the engineering, I, I don't know half of how all that that works with with materials and all that. But it's essentially a patch up job. And so if there's any kind of, of bits of that that have peeled off or uh, you know, sometimes I can kind of tack it back down with my hand, but but that's just again I'm looking up at the landing light and making sure everything is good there Once that's all set I'll head to the front of the engine and look inside at the fan blades and I'm making sure there are no big cracks or dings on those fan blades and, and sometimes there are small chipped out sections but they've been filed down and smoothed out and so they're fine but if there's any jagged or, or sharp sections missing uh, this will require a, a call to maintenance because maybe we ingested a rock or a bird or, or something. So we, we need to get that checked out. And if it's you know kind of like before uh, a small enough ding or something, you know, they could they could file it down and round it out. But if it's a big enough issue, they might actually have to replace the whole fan blade. And, and that would be such a big process that they'd probably swap the plane for you. So once all those fan blades look good, I'll actually grab the, the center of the cone and I'll turn the fan blades to ensure they aren't seized up, that, that the engine's not locked up or anything like that. And But in a lot of cases, actually, if the wind's blowing and it's moving the blades, I won't have to do this and I wouldn't want to because uh, I could actually hurt myself if I'm reaching inside there. And, and sometimes the, the wind can be very strong and it's a little spooky how fast these blades will turn. It makes this very distinct rattling noise uh, that, that you can hear from across the ramp. Uh, so after the fan blades are inspected, I ensure the air temperature probe is attached firmly. This is uh, in, just in front of the fan blades. And then I come outside and there's, there's that same fin that there's on the left side. There's also on the right side of the engine cowling and I'll check that uh, just same as before. And lastly, on the right side of the engine, there is an oil access panel. And I just make sure that it's secured with the four screws that keep it uh, in place. The last thing we would want is to take off with an open panel and, and a screwdriver sticking out. Uh, that wouldn't be good. Don't ask me how I got that idea from. <laughs> Uh, but with the inspection of the engine area complete, now I, I can look at the leading edge of the right wing. The right wing has our under the wing fueling point. And so oftentimes the fueler has the fuel line connected. And so just like with the ramp crew, I, I want to leave them some space and be courteous. and Give them a nod hello, and but give them plenty of room. And you have to be careful because the fuel line is, is attached up to the underside of the wing, but then it, it goes down and then it's on the ground. And it's... I want to say the fueling line is a probably about a somewhere between a four and six inch diameter hose, and uh, that can be a serious tripping problem, uh, tripping hazard. And so you definitely want to watch out for that. And there's also another cable that they have attached to the engine section, the, the tailpipe, um, or or on the landing gear, somewhere metallic. And this is a, a grounding wire. It's it's just. Uh, it helps to ground any kind of static buildup in electricity to make sure that it, it gets grounded instead of 
going kaboom. So electricity and fuel vapor, not a good combination. So that's why we always uh, make sure that that's connected. And again, that can also be a tripping hazard. This is just a small cable, uh, probably less than a half inch diameter, but uh, I have uh, almost completely fallen over because I wasn't watching where it's going. So you guess you learn the hard way sometimes, but it's, it's interesting because you'll be looking up at the leading edge of the wing and uh, you got to remember that there's a fuel line and, and, a, and a static line that's, that's also connected. So just got to watch out for those. After the leading edge of the wing looks good, I'll, I'll look at the wingtip and we have static wick dischargers that will discharge excess static electrical buildup uh, into the atmosphere. Uh, because otherwise a, a surge of static electricity could cause some serious problems. And so uh, I just want to make sure that those static wicks are still intact. Next up, I'll look at the wingtip lights. We have navigation lights that will be on at all times, uh, unless the ground power is not connected to the plane uh, or the plane is off, which is referred to commonly as a cold and dark plane. Uh, but anyway, I, I ensure that those are working. We have our, our navigation lights are our green and, and red lights. And then uh, most, I don't want to say most jets, but a lot of jets will have their uh, tail, what's commonly referred to as the tail white navigation light. Uh, and at least the jet that I fly with, the Ember, the, the white is actually located on the aft section of the wingtip. Uh, other planes will have that tail white light located on the actual tail of the plane itself. But uh, in terms of you know the, the reasons for that, it just, uh, I won't go too far into depth with it, but with our navigation lights, this just uh, allows us to, at nighttime, identify which direction a plane is, is pointing to help us see and avoid it. But I, I make sure that those lights are all working. And uh, one time I, I do remember finding an inoperative navigation light. Um, so the captain and I called for maintenance and we were able to do a pretty neat procedure over the phone without maintenance coming out to the plane at all. So on the jet that I fly, and, and I'm, I should be careful in assuming anything, but I'm, I'm, I am assuming on, on most of these other airliners, these jets, uh, every system has, has some form of redundancy. And so with the navigation lights, we actually have two that are installed in the wingtip. So if one of them burns out, we can actually pop a switch uh, up in the flight deck and it will select the other bulb. So this, this is a huge time saver so that maintenance personnel don't have to come out and we'll be able to get uh, an on-time departure in most cases. Of course, the, the burnt out bulb will be noted uh, in the maintenance logbook so that the next time the plane does go in for an inspection, it will get replaced. But still, it's it's pretty a pretty neat procedure that, uh, again, we were able to get out on time by just switching the, the navigation light to the other one. So there are two on uh, each wingtip. With the lights all looking good, I'll walk around the aft section of the wing and again, looking for dents, dings. Uh, and in the winter time at this point, because the wing is, is sloped uh, down from that vantage point, uh, it's easier to see the top of the wing from there. So I'm looking for any signs of, of frost or ice accretion. And if there's any, I'll, I'll be sure to inform the captain so that we can plan on de-icing prior to takeoff. And next I pop under the wing and look at the main landing gear area. I'm making sure that the tires look good, the, the brake wear indicators show enough brake pad thickness, the downlock springs are in place, the gear pins are non-existent. Uh, the, if a gear pin was installed uh, on the landing gear, this would 
indicate that maintenance is probably being done on the plane and, and I'd want to contact maintenance before departing and I, I wouldn't want to take that gear pin out because maybe they were doing some kind of maintenance on the landing gear. And lastly, I'll actually peek up into the, the gear well and I can actually, as, as someone who is six foot two inches, I can stand up all the way uh, inside this gear well. So it's kind of fun uh, to, to pop up in there. And if you look from outside, you'll just see, you know, some legs sticking out from underneath the, the jet. So it's probably pretty funny looking. Uh, but when I'm in there, I'm, I'm looking around for any hydraulic lines uh, leaking or dangling. And uh, <laughs> during the cold months, uh, especially when it's windy, this is an opportunity to get a, a quick break from the bone-chilling winds. So it's just kind of a fun area to to, to, to sit in there. And uh, not so much on the uh, the right side, but on the left gear well is where one of our exhaust ports is for cabin air. And so you can actually feel a ton of hot air just pouring out. And it's just this nice little outside warmer. So sometimes I like to hang out in there for, for a minute. After that's done, it's back outside to check the hydraulic access panels. There are four of them, uh, smaller panels, but uh, I, I peek inside just one of them and I just kind of like earlier, I'll, I'll check to make sure there's no leaks, broken tangling wires or pipes or anything like that. And sometimes, uh, especially when it's cold, these panels can be a pain to close up uh, to get the hatch to, to latch properly. And you kind of have to fight with the panel and realign it be before the hinge and, and latch will clasp back into place properly. And and it's ugh, I, it's just, like I said, when it's cold, it's especially hard because when you're ever trying to do anything with your hands when it's cold out, I mean, you, your fingertips, they, they get numb, but also painful at the same time when you're trying to use any force. And it's just an unpleasant experience having to, to try and get this thing to, to pop back into place. So so I'm sure someone in the terminal has seen me fussing with the, the thing on occasion and maybe looking a little frustrated. But after I'm done breaking my fingertips, uh, I now look at the tail, uh, which is also called the empennage, if we want to get really technical. And just like before, I'm looking for any dents or scrapes or gashes or pieces missing on the horizontal and vertical stabilizers. And uh, they also have static wicks, just like on the wingtips. And I also want to make sure that the APU exhaust pipe does not show any signs of damage. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe there was a fire or perhaps a, a big dent or something might indicate uh, a catering truck or some truck on the ramp might have backed into it or hit it on accident. And there's videos out there. You can see it happening. It, it does happen. So, oops. Uh, so we're, we're just checking to make sure that that's there. The APU is the alternate power unit. And for those who don't know, this is actually an extra engine in the tail. It's used in the initial startup process and can actually power the entire electrical system on the jet. And then we'll also supply uh, compressed air, it's, it's referred to as bleed air, in order to start the main engines. So after both our main engines are started up, we will then shut the APU down and it, that APU will not be used again until just prior to reaching our gate at our destination. Um, it, the one exception to that is in, if we did have an in-flight electrical or, or engine malfunction, we can also turn it back on to, again, power the entire electrical system. Uh, so even if you had a, a dual engine failure, which is, is incredibly rare, uh, your APU can power everything uh, in the entire aircraft, which is great. At most major airports, we have ground power that will keep lights on in the cabin uh, during the boarding process, but, but at smaller airports, we'll get the APU started prior to boarding to ensure people can see where they're going. 
And in the winter, and, and likewise in the summer, we'll also start the APU just before boarding anyway to get some good air circulation and, and temperature control going. Although most of these airports can connect ground air, it, it just doesn't cut it. It's, it's stale, it's not warm enough during the winter, and it's nowhere near cool enough during the summer. So next time you, you board a plane, if it's really loud on the jet bridge right before stepping onto the plane, uh, there's one of two things. Either there is a plane right next to you that just pulled up to the gate that still has its engines on, or it is the APU on the plane you are, are about to board. It is actually running, and uh, again, it is providing a bunch of air and electricity for the plane. So I'll tell you, I... <laughs> I didn't know jets had a third engine in the tail um, until I was going off to, in, uh, to airline training. So if you didn't know that either, well, now you do. Once the tail looks good, I move to the left side of the aircraft. And since airplanes are symmetrical, or at least the ones that I fly for the most part, um, guess what? There's, there's really no need to tell you how I inspect this side, um, in this case the, the left side, because it's the same as before. We're checking to make sure there's no dings and dents and scrapes and scratches, uh, again, on the wing, on the engine cowling, all that stuff. So it's, it's just mirrored as the other side. So at this point, I've now wrapped up the exterior pre-flight inspection, and depending on the timing, boarding at this point might have commenced, or, or will shortly in most cases. And kind of like I said before, the, the captain has usually done much of the pre-flight in the flight deck, um, but in some occasions I will be at the plane before any crew members have even gotten there. Uh, but by, by the time I'm done with my exterior pre-flight, uh, the rest of them have showed up. So uh, once I come back inside, I'll, I'll get settled and, and I'll start checking things over on, on my side. And there's a variety of different things I check, and, and I won't go into too much depth or bore you, but uh, I, for some examples, I, I check the supplemental oxygen mask uh, to make sure that the, the oxygen comes out properly based on the different modes that the mask can, can work in. I uh, check that the emergency flashlight is, is charged, uh, check for circuit breakers that none have popped out, or if they are popped out, um, you know, on, if it's popped out on purpose, they should have a, a proper collar on it, which, which means that maintenance has, has been done on it and that that's normal. I'll check the alternate gear extension handle and, and again, quite a few other things, but that's just to name a few. Uh, once that's all done, the captain at this point may call for our first checklist, which its title varies at each airline, but it's all doing the same thing. And for us, it's called the Originating Receiving Checklist. And this just ensures that we've checked all the maintenance logs and have determined that that aircraft is ready to be flown for this leg. Um, any kind of maintenance log entries, um, if there's a, a change of aircraft, um, so you know, if we swap aircrafts, anything like that, uh, again, we're always checking the, the maintenance logs. Uh, if there's any swap of crew members, if we've left the aircraft unattended, um, like maybe we headed to the terminal to get some food or something, that would also require us to complete this checklist. But if we were keeping the same plane throughout the day, let's say we had four legs in one day, we will do that originating receiving checklist for the first leg, but after that, we will not have to do this checklist uh, as long as we stay with the plane throughout the day. After that's done, I cross-check my dispatch release and make sure that release matches the route in the FMS, which is the flight management system. It's essentially the computer that we use to navigate and that all of our performance data is input properly. And everything up to this point is, is done whenever someone gets to it. Uh, in other words, if, if the captain wasn't at the plane yet, I would get all those numbers and get the route all plugged into the computer. 
and and I'd have as much done as I possibly could until uh, the captain shows up. But other times, uh, it's more often than not, the the captain uh, has already put most of it in, or, or maybe has started putting some stuff in, but maybe hasn't finished, so I'll help out. Um, and, and we generally like to operate under this train of thought, that we want to get as much done as possible now so that we won't have to rush and feel under pressure later and and this goes for flying too we uh, as we say we want to stay ahead of the airplane um, we're always thinking ahead and that way it leaves more time for just open-ended thinking or or discussions or, or whatever it might be so you're not stressed and crunching for time uh, right before departure Speaking of departure, within 30 minutes of our departure time, which that time is what you see on your boarding pass, we can now get our departure clearance from air traffic control. For all of us operating an airliner in the United States, we have to obtain what's called an IFR clearance. IFR stands for Instrument Flight Rules, and we need this to depart from our airport. Many people uh, who are our first learning about aviation, they might think uh, that instrument clearances, it's it's what is required to fly through the clouds. And, and this is true, but it's also necessary for flying above 18,000 feet and operating in busy airspaces. It's pretty wild because you, you look above and you might think that the sky seems endless and spacious, but things do actually get very busy and proper coordination with air traffic control is key for keeping a good flow of, of traffic in and out of busy airports throughout the entire United States and, and the world for that matter. So this departure clearance is what jump starts this process. Our dispatch team puts together our flight plan packet, files it with the FAA, and then we're able to get cleared to our destination to make sure you get to visit family, friends, or, or go on that skiing trip that you've been planning for months. And if, if you haven't given it much thought, it's a pretty complex process that I'm, I'm only describing the basics and, and barely scratching the surface of the loads and loads of information uh, that, that is needed to explain this operation. But I'm, I'm just giving it to you in, in, a, in a brief little nutshell. So once we obtain our clearance, uh, we'll double check to make sure that the route we were cleared is what we have filed from our dispatch release and what we put into the FMS. I wanna say, probably 90, 95% of the time, it's always the same. Uh, but in some cases, our clearance is, is slightly different. Uh, maybe they filed a different altitude or they did end up changing our route. And so at that point, we'd have to re-input it. And you might ask, well, why don't you just wait to input everything until you get your clearance? Well, again, like I said, 90 to 95% of the time, it does match what we have filed on our release packet, uh, so we'll just kind of do it, and it also just gives you something to do instead of just waiting and doing nothing. So, But once we double check to make sure everything is filled in correctly, the captain will, at this point, complete a release briefing to ensure we are legal to go based on all that information we have in our dispatch release packet. Um, and so once we have our fuel on board and uh, our clearance is obtained, we can now discuss uh, our, our, our route of flight and talk about any pertinent information, weather and, and stuff like that. Make sure we have the correct airplane. It's, it's all squared away. It's all good to fly and all that. Once that's done, we can now set up and brief our departure. So whoever is going to fly that leg, which uh, the PF or pilot flying, check out episode six, the previous episode. If you missed 
any of that information or are curious about the differences between the pilot flying, the pilot monitoring, the captain, the first officer, all that stuff. I go into good depth on that in the previous episode. But whoever is the, the pilot flying, the PF for the leg, will brief the departure at this point. And so we'll talk about all kinds of stuff, uh, the runway, uh, the departure procedure, any engine out procedures, uh, complex procedures and, and special considerations. So it, runways and departure procedures, I won't go into too much depth, but it, it just it has different uh, things that tell us, hey, we need to climb at this rate or turn this, hay, turn this heading and, and, and uh, climb to this altitude, cross this fix at this altitude or at or below, things like that. It's it's somewhat self-explanatory, just kind of like driving on a highway and your GPS tells you to get off at this exit to take a right here. It's, it's kind of all the same idea that it's just telling you where to go. Uh, but where it does get a little interesting is complex uh, procedures. An example of a, of a complex procedure is, uh, would be, let's see, departing Reagan International Airport in DC. If we were departing Reagan to the north, and if you were to fly straight out, uh, just straight north, you'd go right for the National Mall, which of course is a, a prohibited airspace that protects the Capitol building, the White House, monuments, all that stuff. So flying into that would be no bueno. And uh, so we need a complex procedure that has us actually follow the Potomac River to stay west when we are in visual conditions. Because right after takeoff, you can actually, you can look at, you can see the river out, out the window. And so we'll follow the river, which again, keeps us west, northwest, of the mall and that, that prohibited airspace. Uh, if, if we're not in visual conditions and we're in the clouds, we will follow the instrument procedure, uh, which again will keep us, it, it pretty much just flies right over the, the Potomac River and, and it'll keep us away from that uh, prohibited airspace. Another example of a, of a complex departure procedure is departing out of New York's LaGuardia Airport. Uh, when you have all these tall buildings and other busy airports with departing traffic, I mean, we have JFK to the south, Newark to the west, and just traffic everywhere. Uh, for example, if I'm, if I'm thinking correctly, I think departing runway 31 out of LaGuardia, so you're departing to the northwest, you're heading pretty much right towards Manhattan. Uh, there's an example for, for this complex procedure. We actually have to keep a higher angle of climb in order to avoid any of the conflict with the buildings and, and traffic and all that. So in the event of an engine failure, on one engine we could not keep that angle of climb. So it can, it can get kind of nutty with the various turns, uh, depending on how high you are when the engine fails or what distance you are from a certain navigational aid, but, but it would depict when, you know, again, based on distance or altitude, when you would need to make a turn. So these complex specials, as we call them, they, they get pretty, well, complex. They're very complicated, and you have to go over them in quite a bit of depth to make sure that you're ready for, for anything that, that could happen. Uh, because again, in that airspace, things happen pretty quickly, and when you're flying a jet, everything happens very fast. Uh, even on one engine, we're still flying pretty pretty fast, so things do happen uh, in a blink of an eye. And even though there is a, a very small chance, an incredibly small chance of an engine failure, uh, we, we still always practice these procedures in our recurrent annual training every year. Uh, of course, with the hopes that we'd never have to do it in the actual plane, but we, we always go over them. Um, and, and, and again, in the real world, we always brief these procedures uh, and, be, and, and get ourselves ready for, again, that very incredibly small chance that it could happen, but we always want to be on our toes with it. And like I said, we always brief it and, and fly like anything can happen. We, we stay prepared and expect the unexpected. 
And again, I'll, I'll say it one more time. It, although incredibly rare, uh, an engine failure can occur, and it has happened. Um, in fact, many have heard of the, at least you've heard of, of the title, Miracle on the Hudson. And this is a story, uh, a true story, obviously. And in 2009, there was a, a U.S. Airways Airbus that had, I think, a total of 155 people on board. And it actually lost both engines shortly after departure, after ingesting a flock of geese into the engines. So it Again, it's, it's very rare to lose one engine, but losing both engines is, is even more rare. I mean, the, the odds are, are I'd have to look up the, the actual odds of that, but it's, it's in the one to millions and millions. I mean, it, it just, it never happens like that. And, but even though the, the airplane flew into a flock of geese, they lost both engines, because of the procedures and the experience of the crew, uh, they they elected to ditch into the Hudson River, but even after doing that, uh, even being in January when it was pretty cold to be going into the water like that, everyone made it out alive. And Captain Sullenberger remarked in an interview that from that engine failure to ditching was only 210 seconds. And he said that 210 seconds is what defined his career. And if you've ever wondered why airline pilots can be in most cases paid quite handsomely, it's because of that. In 99.999% of our day-to-day -day operations, things go pretty well. Uh, even with delays and diversions, lost luggage, canceled flights, I mean, how often do we see an airliner crash? It's not often. And so the rigorous training we go through, proper planning and, and briefing of these complex and unusual procedures is what keeps us on our toes as pilots. And that's where things become real. If an emergency happens, what are we going to do? What checklist are we going to run? And that's why we are constantly briefing and, and getting prepared for anything. So when it comes to flying the plane and going about normal operations, the job is is not too complicated. It, it honestly can get stressful from being away from home a lot of the time and and when you do have delays and you're you're essentially at work for 10 to 12 hours maybe even longer it, it can get tiring but once things are uh, operating normally it's it's fairly stress-free and it's a lot of fun and, and that's why i signed up to to be a pilot it's because i i love flying and i love looking outside that window and seeing the world from from a bird's eye perspective I and mean, that's why i've always wanted to do this and so for the most part, flying is is pretty straightforward. But again, those those small chances of something bad happening, um, while small, while all incredibly infrequent, the the chance of an engine failure or anything like that, we we have to brief those items, and talk about them and and practice them every year at, at our at our annual um, recurrent training. I know that was quite of a side tangent talking about safety and procedures and planning and all that stuff, but uh, once that briefing is, is all complete, again, we talked about the, the complex departures and, and procedures and, and all that, now we sit and wait. Like I said before, we, we try to get everything uh, all complete and, and as soon as we're able to um, so that we don't have to rush later. Uh, again, we, staying ahead of the plane and staying ahead of, of what's going on, uh, constantly thinking ahead. It's it's what will make uh, our day-to-day -day operations run a lot smoother because we're we're thinking about what's coming next. Sometimes things will happen with diversions and whatnot where it's it's almost impossible to to think as far ahead as you can. 
but for the most part we do and and that just makes it less less stressful so at this point uh, while we're waiting passengers are boarding and and we're maybe talking about our next meal or, or the boat the captain just bought or why it's 50 degrees now in little rock arkansas but it'll be minus 15 once we land in chicago two hours from now so we might just be chatting about random stuff up there uh, and finally, with, with most or, or all of the passengers boarded, the captain will make his or her welcome aboard announcement and will be almost set to go. The gate agent will come down to inform us that boarding is complete and we will close the boarding doors. Our goal is to have those boarding doors closed so that we can release the parking brake at or prior to our departure time. And again, our departure time is what you see on your boarding pass. And so if we get those doors closed, the parking brake is dropped, then that will count as our block out time, which will, in all the computers and all the digital fanciness, will tell you that, hey, your plane actually departed on time. And so we, we try and get that done so that we actually do, in fact, depart on time. And, and that's probably one thing you've, you've often wondered about is, oh, a flight from point A to point B, wait, that's really three hours? Well, think about all the in-between time of being at the gate, pushing back from the gate, taxiing around, finally taking off. If you ever listen up carefully to a, a welcome aboard announcement, uh, you'll hear we'll often talk about the flight time. And the flight time will be much shorter, or, or at least a little bit shorter, than what you'll notice as your total travel time on when you, when you initially purchase the ticket. So because what we're concerned about is our flight time. Uh, we know uh, from a pilot standpoint, we know about all the taxing and, and ramp procedures and all that. So, uh, but you know, when you're booking a trip, you're looking at the total travel time. For us, we're looking at the flight time because we care about you know what kind of winds, weather, and all that kind of stuff. So again, the, the flight time, as, as we call it, wheels up to wheels down time, uh, will be oftentimes uh, about anywhere from a half hour to an even up to an hour shorter than what you have seen scheduled on your ticket. Again, now that those boarding doors are closed, the flight attendants will start going through their pre-flight safety briefings and the forward flight attendant will come up and tell us that the before taxi checks are complete and we'll say, oh, sweet, see you in Chicago. And then they'll now close the flight deck door. And so at this point, uh, what happens now? If you've sat towards the front of the airplane, you, you've noticed, okay, the flight deck door closes and that's it. You don't see or, or well, you do hear from us <laughs> up front. You know, we'll make some announcements in cruise, but you don't see us until we get uh, on the ground to our gate. And so what happens at that point? As, as a passenger, an everyday passenger, you can kind of at least get an idea of what of what's going on uh, about what I've described uh, up to this point. But one, once that door is closed, what's happening now? Why does it sometimes take 20 minutes to push back? When, af after the time we've closed the boarding doors, uh, sometimes it might take 20, even 30 minutes to push back versus other times we'll close those doors and we might start pushing back within a couple minutes. Well, I'm going to tell you about all of that, but I'm going to wait until next week on episode eight of Cleared for Takeoff. This is already such a, well, I don't want to say such a longer episode, but it's a longer episode than some of my previous ones. So I want to just break this up a little bit so that you're not going to be listening to too long of a podcast. So we're going to be talking about the second part of Behind the Scenes, a full flight next week. So thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'll be back next Friday with part two of the behind the scenes look at a full flight. But until then, as always, fly safe.